All right, the scripture passage for today is Colossians 1, 11 through 20. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. May you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the darkness, power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that we might come to have a place in everything. Uh, he is, uh, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile himself to all things, whether on the cross or whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of, uh, of his cross. Uh, you know, it's, uh, the, the uh, music selection for today I thought was great, and I'm going to talk about this concept of, uh, of completeness um, and, and, and kind of focusing on the idea that not only are we made complete, but that we're able to find completeness because the completeness of God dwells in Christ. Um, I thought about calling this the one weird trick for living a good Christian life. And uh, this, a lot of this is actually uh, dedicated to our uh, good friend, Mason Matthews, who has a, uh, a, a deep appreciation for the, uh, the history of, um, of uh, computer science, and we'll get to that in a little while. Uh, or maybe calling this uh, the divine click-through. Uh, the real question that this scripture poses to us is how can we live a life that honors God and advances the kingdom? And here's the thing. The way Paul answers that question is not to uh, give a specific kind of doctrine or practice. Gabe, okay, can you sit down, please? Either sit there or sit down. Thank you is not to give a uh, specific practice of prayer or reading. He doesn't start with a specific doctrinal point. What's so beautiful about the verse for today is that when uh, Paul's in a position to say what it is exactly that we need to do in order to live the Christian life, he responds simply by giving an image of who Jesus is, which I think is beautiful. Instead of saying, here's the thing that you need to do, here's the prescription that helps you uh, know how to live a life which is more fully Christian. Here's the uh, course of reading or uh, amount of Caleb that you might need to listen to or whatever the thing is that we might suggest as a means of understanding how we are to draw closer to uh, God and live the Christian life. For Paul, the answer is simply to present this picture of who Jesus is. And, you know, the interesting thing to me is if we think in some way that that is insufficient, perhaps we're not fully internalizing the power of that vision, that we ought to be transformed simply by a description of who it is that Jesus is. That's what Paul's suggesting here. So we're going to continue with this series on Paul's letters, and you know now we're focusing on Colossians, but really what we're trying to figure out, I think, is uh, how we can live the Christian life, and uh, you know we want to do so by thinking about uh, what it is that uh, these churches, we started with Thessalonica, and now we're in, in Colossae, uh, what it is that is the problem that they had to confront and uh, the issue that they need to, fi- to fix. And as, you know, as we kind of get more into reading these Pauline letters, the thing I see is that on one hand, 
the, the problem that these churches faced uh, is not exactly the same problem as ours. Like none of us is uh, under pressure to, uh, you know, swear affinity to the emperor's cult. Uh, very few of us are under the uh, threat of uh, Dionysian, Dionysian drinking until we can't uh, really see the problems or issues in the world anymore. And if anyone is, please feel free to contact me for some pastoral intervention. And, you know, none of us is really uh, super tempted by the looming specter of, of Jewish Gnosticism that suggests to us that if there's a secret path of learning and knowledge, we can come to more fully connect with God. But, you know, as we think about this more, I think the thing that we see is that the problems that Paul's addressing, though we don't face them in exactly the same way, they are these kind of characteristic ways that we can miss out on the, the beauty and the fullness of the Christian life. I mean, in Thessalonica, we said, what were the options? The options were to try and control everything around you so that you didn't need God. We called that the Roman option. The Dionysian option was to, to try and ignore the pain, suffering, and brokenness of the world. And the Jewish Gnostic option that we're seeing here in Colossae is to say, you know, if, if you're ever at a point where you need something to solve a problem in your world, to make yourself right to the world, to understand how you live in the world, the temptation is to say, well, there might be something that we need in addition to the person of Jesus Christ. So, you know, each of the things we've been looking at, each of these congregations is something that you know, is unique to them, but it, they also point to these kind of broader spiritual realities that we're all constantly struggling with and constantly dealing with. So the, the little portion of Colossians that we're looking at today, if you, we started uh, doing it last week, and if you remember, Paul had just kind of started into this prayer. And it's important that we uh, look at this prayer because Paul is opening the letter by saying, here are the things that I desire for this congregation. So, you know, looking at the prayer is, to me, a really important way of saying, what does Paul see as the primary point or outcome of what spiritual practice ought to look like? And the funny part is, you know, if you follow the pattern in, in the lectionary, uh, it kind of takes up this week at verse 10 or 11 in the middle of Paul's prayer, uh, in the middle of the kind of beginning of his prayer. So what is he praying for? Let's step back a little bit. What is he praying for? He is praying, this is what, 9 and Intend that the church, those in the church in Colossae should live a life that is worthy of the Lord, that they should bear fruit, and they should grow in the knowledge of God. So that's, that's the purpose of his prayer and the purpose of, uh, of his letter, is that we ought to think about the best ways that we can practice the Christian life so that our life is worthy of God, so that it bears fruit, and so we grow in our knowledge of God. That's the goal, and it's pretty all-encompassing, right? I mean, it says uh, how we live and the effect of how we live on other people and the things that we know, those things should all come together in the person of Christ. So what exactly are we supposed to know about God? <laughs> you know, important question. What is it that, that we need to grow and, and know? Well, I, I, I previewed this a little bit last week, but for those of you who you know, got a chance to uh, look at this again, there's this important hint there. What is the most used word? And of course, it's uh, dependent on the translation, but what is the most used word that you find in this section? There are two concepts that are used over and over and over. All and fullness. Almost everything in here is either saying that Christ is all or that Christ is the fullness. Christ is all of, you know, the representation of God, the existence of God uh, holds the universe together, and Christ is the fullness of God. So let's think about why Paul would, you know, start with this idea that Christ is all and Christ is the fullness, <coughs> excuse me, as, as we talked about uh, last week, 
uh, there was this group of believers in Thessalonica that um, had kind of started to, as they experienced persecution, as they uh, experienced a little bit of a, I don't know, a delay in when they expected God would come back, as they experienced the difficulties of day-to-day life and of being a Christian in a new context, they had started to you know, say, well, maybe we don't have the full or complete gospel. Maybe there's something that we're not doing that we're supposed to be doing. Maybe there's something we need to add to um, what we uh, encountered in the person of Jesus Christ. And for them, this little add-on was Gnosticism, which was this spiritual practice that said there's a secret wisdom about God and the universe that if we just learned it, we could give up our connection to the material world and really focus on the divine. And we talked a little bit last week about you know, what, how it was kind of a, a weird thing for Paul to say that the point of spiritual practice was to give up on the material world. But the, the big issue here is not just the way it thinks about knowledge or the material world. The big issue here is that what these folks in the church in, in Colossae were saying is that there was something that you needed in addition to Jesus that would make you spiritually happy, spiritually healthy, and that would make you right with God. And so that was the kind of main idea behind Gnosticism. And after we finished talking about this last week, Dan came up and I think suggested a really interesting modern version of this. The, the, Dan suggested that this Gnostic tendency of saying that there is something more or something else that we need besides Jesus for him was represented in modern day in the concept of a bucket list. You know, I thought it was a great suggestion that we have all these visions of things that we need to do to go, that go above and beyond the day-to-day practice of our Christian life that would finally make our life full and finally make our life complete and finally make our life meaningful. And I think it's an excellent suggestion by Dan to say the modern version of this Gnostic problem is not simply that we might focus on a, 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 the, you know, spirituality or proper exercise of doctrine, but that we do very much have this sense that church is one area of our life that we need to get right, but there are other areas of our life that we need to get right. And when we get those other areas right, churches and spirituality is one thing among others that is a, a, a recipe for a healthy person. And we talk that way all the time. Even, even good Christian folk talk that way. You know, I've got to get my like, business and or economic house in order, and I've got to get my relationships in order, and of course I've got to get my spirituality right. And like, there's this weird way that we see the efficacy of Christian practice as one element in the uh, fullness of our life, as opposed to... What Paul is saying here, it is the fullness of our life. So what he's doing is he's saying, uh, and and why I appreciated uh, Dan's suggestion there is, what Paul is addressing is he's addressing any claim that says that there is something other than the fullness of Christ, the fullness of Jesus, that is necessary for you to live a life that is happy and made right with God. That's the modern vision of the Gnostic tendency. Because what, what, what really kind of made Paul angry about the Gnostics is their sense is that Christ was not enough. There was something else that we needed in order to see and to be uh, full and happy. And so the absolute brilliance of Paul's strategy here, you know, because look, if, if, if someone said, yeah, I've got this problem, I don't feel like the Christian life is fulfilling for me, and I've been, I've been trying to find all these other ways of making life right, so I've, been, I've taken up a hobby, and I've made new friends, and I'm learning a language, and I'm, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a, I, I have a new uh, a workout schedule, and I've been eating exactly the right diet, and I've been going to therapy, and I've been doing all this stuff to kind of adjust myself and to, to make myself right and to, to really experience the fullness of life. And, you know, we might have all kinds of even spiritual prescriptions for how to deal with that. 
Well, what you need to do is you need to read your Bible more often, you need to pray more often, and you need to believe the right things about God, and you need to be in an accountability group, and that accountability group needs to hold you to certain... And, and Paul's like, no, it's not that we need any specific uh, spiritual practice. Paul literally answers this question by saying, if you think you need fullness in something else, you don't understand the fullness embodied in Jesus Christ. It's not that there's a specific practice or application that we need. It's that we need to really meditate on. That's his answer here. Meditate on exactly who Jesus Christ is. That's the one weird trick. That's the, the key. The, the thing here is that what Paul is saying is if, if you feel as if there is some fullness that is lacking in your life or in lacking in who you are or in what you do, it's not that you need to find something else. It's not that you even need to have some better or more accurate or more appropriate spiritual practice. He literally says what you need to do is simply focus on the image of who Jesus is. Period. There's not anything more there. Look at verses 11 and 12. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of Satan the lights. Now, the beautiful thing here, the Greek, uh, the Greek is fantastic here. So that word made strong with the strength, the Greek is beautiful. It's dunome dunamenoi. And it doesn't just mean strength. What the Greek word dunamis means the ability to do something. So if you're a Spanish speaker, it's like poder. It's like this ability to do anything in the abstract. So what he's saying here is that Christ is not only something that adds to us, but literally it is we, the, the ability to, uh, to engage in or to, to make potent any ability. That Jesus Christ is uh, the thing that makes us able to do anything that it is that we need to do. The beautiful thing that Paul's saying here is that if we feel like there's some specific thing that we need to be able to do in our lives, some specific ability or skill or thing that we need to exercise, that the way to cultivate that is not to you know, figure out how to be better at that skill in some meaningful way. The way to cultivate that is to see exactly who Jesus Christ is because Jesus Christ is so, is so much the fullness of God and of the universe that if there is some specific thing that we need that he he can empower and prepare us to do anything, and in fact, to endure anything and to endure it with joy. He's saying that Christ is the very principle of the universe and of action and of possibility, and if there is something that we need to be able to do or be able to act on, the first thing that we need to do is to focus fully on the, the character and person of Jesus Christ. There's no specific thing that we need to be able to do that is not informed by the fullness of Jesus Christ and made possible by the fullness of Jesus Christ. Then look at 13 and 14. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transformed us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now I talked about this a little bit last week, but the word here for uh, a, a transferred us is exousia. So it's a word that should invoke for you uh, like a exodus of getting out of something, of being brought out from under something. And it means so much more than just like, a lot of times when we say we're freed from the penalty of sin, what we mean is like, well, there may be still consequences in our life for engaging in sin, but we've been freed from the ultimate penalty of sin by God's redemption. And what, what, what the word exousias here means even more than that. It's that in the fullness of the person of Christ, we are literally transferred from under the authority of sin so that we can live a life that is different from and not controlled by the impulses of and the authority of sin and death, that Christ is full enough for us to be set free. So, so far we've got the image of fullness of Christ is enough for us to be able to do anything 
And the image of the fullness of Christ is enough for us to be set free. Now, here's the beautiful one. 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, the Greek word here, uh, this, is, this is for my uh, computer science geeks. The Greek word for image here is icon. And in many ways, we understand the idea of icon more powerfully than folks did in Colossae. So this is one of the few times where I say we actually have a better metaphor than they did for understanding this. For, so for them, an icon was what? It was a picture or an image of God. And so we'd look at that icon and it would in some ways represent God. And the risk of it was that if we got too focused on that icon, we might think that the icon was God instead of just a representative of God. And so the real struggle they had with icons is how do you make sure an icon doesn't become an idol, right? That's their basic problem. Okay, so when we think of icon, what do we think of? Yeah, pick up your phone and click on it, and there's a picture that you might press in order to open up a program. That's what an icon is for us. Now, this is what I think is so beautiful to me. In when we think about an icon, I mean, like back in the early 70s, even before I was born, there were these nice guys at Xerox that created this thing called the graphic user interface. And the brilliance of the whole thing was that if any, if any of you used computers back in the day, like I, I grew up without, um, without, even before like there was Windows OS. So for us, a computer program was we'd pick up the basic. Yeah, that's right. It, well, no, even for me, even before floppies, it was uh, cassette tapes. So we'd manually enter basic code and we'd record it on the cassette tape. And so to, in order to get a program to run, it was like seven, eight hours of sitting there entering, and then you'd inevitably fail and you'd have to do it over. And then it was like this huge revolution to, uh, to, to have Windows where you'd, at least, you'd only have to do like, maybe you'd have to do like C colon to shift to whatever your hard drive was, and then you had to run .exe to run whatever the program was. And like getting a program going was kind of a big thing. But even, even in the more efficient version of it, or you might open a command window to get something going and, and enter a command. And like the folks at Xerox and then Steve Jobs and Bill Gates stole it, had this brilliant idea that instead of having to go through like 10 steps of essentially entering code or names or commands for things, you could just click on this thing and this thing would be equivalent with the program in the user's experience. That the icon was the functional representation of the fullness of the thing. So if I want to represent to you uh, a web browser, all I have to do is show you, you know, a, a fox or a compass or a little, uh, you know, the Google uh, Chrome icon. And that icon becomes equivalent with the thing itself. That is an icon. An icon is a picture or point of interaction that stands in for the whole thing. So much so that the icon becomes for all intents and purposes, the thing for us. So when I click on my Firefox icon on my web browser, I don't have to think about the bajillion lines of code that are running in the background in order to create a standardized point of interface with all the things that are going on on the internet. Instead, that icon serves as the tangible representative of me, for me of the entirety of the thing that I don't quite see. It's as if that icon is the image of the invisible thing. We have this wonderful sense of icons that totally informs the way that we interact with the world around us that's different from looking at a picture to, uh, to understand something. And here's the thing. If you want to understand the problem with the Gnostics, it's that the Gnostics had the graphic user interface and they said, this is too simple of a way to open a program. And I'd rather go back to the old entering lines of code 
in order to access the divine. And Paul is saying, guys, just click on the icon because Jesus Christ is the full and complete representative of the thing. And if you think you need to open a command line or enter lines of code to access God, you've missed the point of what it is that Jesus Christ has done. That's why Paul all of a sudden explodes with this beautiful kind of rendition of who Jesus is in the verses that follow. He is the firstborn of creation, brought forth before everything else. For in him, in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him he himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. It's beautiful. What he's saying, that Greek word for hold together is soon staken and it means composed of, cohering, proven, and comprehended. He's saying every little teeny bit of reality is put together in Jesus, is held together in Jesus, is proven and made real in Jesus, and continues to exist in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fullness of the entirety of God. He is the divine click-through. He is the icon that stands in for the entirety of the power of the Trinity, of, 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 the, of all three persons, of the creation of the universe. In him, everything is held together. So Christ is not only enough for us to do anything and to set us free from sin, but Christ is the very principle that causes creation to hold together and the principle that is the head of the church. Christ is all in all. Christ is everything. This icon or representation of God allows us to do anything, to be anything, is the principle that makes all creation hang together, is the all and all the fullness. We are complete in Christ, not because we need to add a little bit of Jesus to make our lives better, but because Jesus is the principle of ultimate and total completion. And all we need to do is to look at and to reflect on and to be transformed by that image, period. There is no other line of code or procedure that you need to enter to access the character or person of God. From time to time at Resurrection Church, we've taken guff from folks that say, you know, you think it's kind of a nice idea for a church, but there's all this stuff you leave undefined. You know, there's these things that we don't know about. And we've had people who, you know, came by for a while and said, well, we're going to, you know, we're, we're not entirely comfortable staying if these, if these things aren't made explicit, the, that, which is fine. People should you know, worship in the places they want to worship. But our image here, at least I believe, at least as I understand it, is that we are responding to what Paul is saying here, which is that all we need, the fullness and the totality of what is demanded, expected, and made open to us in the person of Jesus Christ is simply that we spend our time trying to understand the fullness that is present in Jesus and not demand anything external to it, not demand anything in addition to it, not demand anything other than to meditate on who and what and the totality of how the divine, the Trinity, the entirety of the universe, the principle through which things hold together, that for us to focus on that image of Christ is enough because Christ is enough and because Christ is complete. Nothing else is required. Amen. Questions, comments?